What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Dream Chasing 101 podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that's not really covered that well. And with us today, we have Neela. And I'll leave it up to Neela just to give us a bit of background to who she is and what she does. Thank you so much. Um, hello, listeners. I am Neela Lay. I am a conservation plant geneticist in Southern California. And um, I love to save plants and that is I believe one of my purposes in life um and when I say that don't worry don't worry about what your you know like if you don't know what your purpose is it's all good um that's maybe why you're listening to this podcast so um so yeah I feel very lucky and blessed to uh feel as though I am fulfilling my purpose in life and it's starting in my own little community here in Southern California, greater LA. And, you know, before we jump deeper into, you know, you fulfilling your purpose or one of the purposes, you know, in life, uh, you've obviously listened to at least one of the episodes. So, you know, the question that's coming up, what did you want to be growing up and, you know, how far are you from that right now? Uh, right. I, so, that is a really great question and a good one to revisit often, I feel. Um, I remember wanting to be a lot of things growing up. Uh, I remember wanting to be an artist. Um, I remember wanting to be a singer. And then when I got a little bit older, I figured um, to appease my immigrant Asian family, I should become a pediatrician because I love kids and I would be, uh, you know, one of the top three that Asiatic families require their progeny to yeah. be, which is um, lawyer, engineer, or doctor. And um, I was like, yeah, cool. I'll be a pediatrician. I like that. But then obviously as I got older, um, things change. <laughs> People change, feelings change. Um, and I realized that I am not the type of personality to do well as a physician. I would take my work home with me constantly. I would be really affected by it. My quality of life would not be good. And thus my patients would probably not be happy. Um, this is all the internal monologue that was going yeah. on in my head. And, um, so when I decided to go to, um, college and apply to universities and such, I was like, okay, I don't know exactly what I want to do yet, which what 18 year old really actually does. knows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What they want to do for the next 40 <laughs> years of their life. Um, I was like, all right, I'm going to study biology because the sciences have always intrigued me. I've always been a precocious and curious child. Um, so I'm going to study biology. I'm curious about life and, um, then that's how my career kind of began, basically. And, you know, biology is such a broad spectrum of, you know, topics and, you know, there's things that go into such depth. Why conservation, um, you know, and, and kind of you zoned into one specific, you know, zone in conservation. So can you maybe take us through, um, you know, that process of, you know, picking something that, specific because that's obviously yeah. quite difficult especially you know when like you mentioned at 18 years old and obviously as you grow a little older you're still young you know to make these decisions takes a bit of time 
Yeah, certainly. Um, so I am 28 now, so that makes me a millennial. Um, millennials, unfortunately, no, <laughs> millennials grew up in this climate, <laughs> climate, um, because I'm about to talk about climate change, in this um, anxious climate about climate change. Um, I think that at least anyone who is like aware of their surroundings, surroundings. <laughs> yeah and was and is a little bit like in tune with what's going on with the world um I think that a lot of people experienced this uh fear about what life is going to be like in 20 years and 50 years etc so um I recall that always being in the back of my mind and um yeah, the, the term is climate change anxiety, and it's where you are, where you make decisions in life that um, sort of reflect that and try to, and you try, try to mitigate that as much as possible. So um, when I was studying biology, I was like, what could I do that makes an impact in the world that, you know, I'm able to leave a legacy in this world, right? Because by, like, I don't know if you know, but it's an evolutionary stable strategy for humans to want to leave some sort of legacy. Yeah. And um, I was like, okay, I, I can't, st- I want to do research in climate change, but I can't, I don't want to study animals because usually when you study animals, you, well, not usually, but sometimes when you study animals, you have to like kill them and cut them up and manipulate them and, animals obviously bleed and scream and cry and stuff and all that (laughs) like that's just not for me so I was like oh plants plants are cool because they don't scream they don't cry they don't they don't bleed and they're always in the same place you don't have to chase them (laughs) and um yeah so it so it was really the climate change anxiety that caused me to go into research in this um specific realm because if I like if you wanted to be a glamorous um, researching scientist, I don't know if any researching scientists are listening to this podcast at the moment, but if you are, this is this is just true. Um, if you if you want the glitz and the glamour and the and the money, to be frank, um, you you typically go into stem cell or cancer research. Um, or uh, these days, there's a lot of uh, money being funded towards cannabis research and like drought tolerance with cannabis and, so, and stuff like that. Um, so if you if you are driven by you know that type of thing, then that's that's the research that you would typically go, go into. But the last, <laughs> probably one of the last um, fields that you would go into as a researching scientist, I I think in general is plant conservation. Um, and that's apparent at multiple levels. It's not just at the, you know, STEM, like the firsthand level. It's also when you, when you look at what type of science is being funded by the federal government in the United States, for example, um, conservation, restoration, that sort of thing is for the most part last on the, on the list, on the laundry list of things to fund. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I wanted to make an impact in the world, save plants, um, protect our wildlands, and that's how I'm here. <laughs> and you know, you mentioned the the climate change anxiety. 
because um you know usually when someone chooses to go into a specific field we either have you know a role model or someone that we kind of can relate to that's already there um did you ever you know dive deeper before you know choosing plants specifically was there someone that you know has done previous research that you looked up to or was it all just based on you know let me try you know make an impact on the world but obviously animals when you know that wasn't an option for you but you know is that the way it kind of went or was there someone that you could kind of look up to i honestly that's a great question but i honestly don't think that there was and if there was i can't recall um Mm. i have really bad memory (laughs) so if there was a role model uh for 18 year old me then apologies (laughs) and thank you but i can't i can't recall (laughs) okay because i think the thing is and that's also sometimes an overstated thing is like we always try and credit someone else for our decisions and sometimes like some of it is just internal um so yeah just the interesting thing to to, especially in your field because like you mentioned it's always you know when you hear of conservation it's the species you know like specific animal species that are on the verge of you know going extinct basically or they're endangered and you don't really hear much about plants so that's why I was kind of just interested to see if there was someone that kind of sparked your interest um that's a really good point that you just made is when you hear about conservation stories in the news or on social media or whatever it typically is charismatic megafauna um, like the panda or the polar bear. It's like, oh, they're so cute. We should conserve them. Yeah, like, again, that's a biological thing to want to conserve cute or beautiful or, you know, things that we deem valuable for their yeah. phenotype, for their aesthetic. Um, but plants are beautiful too. And genetic diversity, biodiversity in general, whether we can see it with our eyeballs or not, um, is worthy of being saved. And so sort of like how animals don't have a voice and no one, you know, really fights for them. Um, plants definitely don't have a voice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, um, that doesn't mean that they're any less deserving of being saved because when we think about why we, you and I, all of us, anything is here that is living. Um, we owe it all to plants. Like if without plants, yeah. we would not, you know, be here today to talk about, to have this podcast <laughs> recording exactly. and talk about all of this. So um, trying to be an advocate for the environment from a plant, you know, an endangered, threatened, rare plants perspective is um, I think something that I take really seriously. And, you know, if we can maybe just go back into your studying years, um, you know, when, when we at that young age, there's so many variables at hand when, you know, choosing a career, for instance, like um, the, the fear of, you know, finding a job once you eventually, you know, graduate and you get whatever you've, you know, chose to study. Um, going into the science field, 
you know, you obviously had this interest, but what fears did you have, you know, choosing this field, knowing that it's it's an underrepresented kind of science in a way? You know, did you ever think about like, is this really right for me? Because you have your master's, so you've literally gone almost all the way. And I saw your your tweet you put out the other day about doing your um, doctorate. Um, mm-hmm. So just, you know, the way you process this and, you know, choosing science um, as a career. Um, right. Yeah, there's a lot to think about, obviously, when going through the motions of uh, of your your life's work, basically. Um, and that's not to say, again, to anyone listening, <laughs> that's not to say that you have to have one path and that you have to stick in that path forever. That's just my own, I think I'm just projecting like my own personal anxiety about, I, I'm, I have general anxiety. I don't know if you could tell. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I just thought like, yeah, what do, what is stable? What is um, practical? What would make me happy? Those are all sort of things that I value and, um, and valued when I was choosing my path forward. So um, let's see. I, first of all, I should say that I'm lucky enough to have a mom and family that was cool with me choosing whatever was going to make me happy. Um, I mean, to an extent, like if I was, (laughs) if I were to be like, no, I'm going to go join the circus or, you know, (laughs) like something totally out of left field. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, it was within reason, like I gave them, you know, all my logic and they were like, okay, yeah, like, you know, whatever you, you think it, this is your life, whatever you think is best uh, for you, you should go ahead and do that. So first of all, I want to shout out my parents and <laughs> my family. Um, secondly, I, that's, that's kind of why I chose biology when I first applied to a university because I was like, well, okay, worst case scenario a bio degree could technically, like, there's a wide variety of things that I could end up doing and sort of be happy doing. Um, even if it wasn't like my quote unquote dream job, even though I don't think dream jobs exist in capitalism. Um, so I was like, that's why I chose biology. And then because I had such a good experience, because I had a great advisor, um, great ally for female uh, young people of color in STEM, um, who encouraged me and empowered me to do, you know, what I was doing. Um, that's what pushed me to do a master's. And yeah, that, uh, regarding that, that tweet about not wanting to do a PhD is it's very deliberate. And, um, I was talking to a few colleagues recently, actually. So it's kind of perfect that you asked this question and that we're doing this podcast today because they asked me that, that question. And I was like, no, honestly, I've, I've thought about, it obviously yeah like as a scientist if you you know love to learn then the the obvious step is to do a PhD and then you have to do a postdoc maybe two sometimes three which is wild to me uh because you could be like 40 years old and not have like your you know your 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 job yet your your like yeah. the job that you want yet and that is wild to me but 
yeah, it's a very concerted decision not to pursue a doctorate because of how um, rare it is to find a job like mine and to then have this degree that forces people to pay you more. Um, it, it really, really diminishes my, I think, my opportunity. And again, I don't know all of this for a fact, but this is what I think is that a, a job like mine opens up once maybe every 10 years. And even when it does, what are the chances that it's actually somewhere where you want to live? Because <laughs> no offense to my fellow Americans, but I don't want to be living in Nebraska or Ohio or... <laughs> and again, that, that sounds very elitist and Californian of me, but... Honestly, like I'm just, that's my West Coast bias, I guess. uh, I'm from Portland, Oregon and, you know, grew up in the Bay Area. So I I just want to stay close to family. That's all. It's not, it's nothing against, (laughs) it's nothing against the East Coast or the Midwest. But um, yeah, so, so the, the chances of getting a job that you like with, you know, colleagues that are supportive of you in your early career, um, getting a decent wage, like all of these things you have to think about as, you know, a young woman in science, in STEM in general, and even beyond like any male dominated career, um, which there's a lot of them. Basically every career. Yeah. Basically everyone except like, I don't know, (laughs) nannying. (laughs) I don't don't know. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so a lot to think about. And that's why I'm like, yeah, I could do a PhD, no problem. Like, yeah, I would love to get paid to learn, but at what cost? Yeah. And yeah, I think that's, you know, there's obviously this, um, especially with COVID and the way, you know, um, education has adapted. There's this question of, you know, is... um, you know, like college is, is it worth it? You know, there's, there's always this notion that's being, especially now with, you know, the internet being such a valuable resource and it literally can give you the qualification in certain fields. But do you feel obviously with science and things pertaining to that field, there's obviously such important value of going through the necessary, you know, um, steps of getting your degree honors masters and then your phd um but do you ever feel that sometimes some of this is also just you know there could be a a few a few steps less you know like is is there is does it ever come across to you that way that you know we could do this in you know two steps less versus you know like going the full 100 yeah yeah, I know what you mean. Like, for example, in tech, um, a lot of folks, because the industry is moving at such a rapid pace, a lot of times their education cannot catch up to yeah. the actual industry. So they supplement or they can take alternative routes in order to get the position that they want and that they're a hundred percent qualified for. Um, yeah, I get that. So systemically in academia, at least, right? Because there's academia and research in, you know, the, like on the academic side, but then there's also industry research. I, 
I, I think that with both, it's still very much systemically old school in that sense mm. where don't eat, like we could be here for two hours and I'm, and I can tell you all about the red tape and the bureaucracy and the, this, that, and the, and the inaccessibility, the non-egalitarian, you know, process and all of this stuff. But in short, I think that it's still at a stage and I don't see it changing in our lifetimes where you don't have to go that the like university and then higher education route, unfortunately. But do you think in science in your field particularly, like can that, do you think there needs to be that shift? Even if it isn't in our lifetime, do you still think there needs to be a bit of a shift? It may not be, um, as big as, you know, for instance, some other fields, like for instance, your creative, you know, degrees and stuff like that. You don't actually have to go at all. Like you literally don't have to, but obviously in your field, you kind of do, there still needs to be that learning phase and research phase. So do you think there still needs to be a bit of shift, even though it may not be in our lifetime? Oh, for sure. Um, 100% there needs to be a shift, especially because in the lens of climate change and if you believe that conservation is important, that um, biodiversity is important, that restoration of um, degraded landscapes is important, there is so, so much data to be processed and there's also so much literal physical manual restoration work to be done um just like for for example not even here locally but like in the tropics there are thousands maybe more tens of thousands maybe of all different kinds of species not just plants but insects for example you could go into a tropical rainforest and like shake a tree and like a hundred different species that have not been described yet of insects are going to fall from it. And how, like sort of like how I said earlier about how technology is moving so fast that we cannot keep up. We Extinction is happening so fast that we can't even describe it. So if we can, and if we can't describe it, how are we going to assign it a conservation rank? And then from there, how are we going to save it? And so it's just like all of this like inherent valuable you know, stuff, you know, whatever, whatever you want to think about, um, is just being lost right before our eyes. And it, a lot of times I feel as though, um, climate change scientists and conservation biologists are a little bit jaded because we see the science, we read the papers and it's like, it's, it's been way too late, you know, in order for us to actually do anything about the state of this planet. That, like, even when it is, when it does come time for us as a planet to be like, oh, crap, we don't have any more clean water to drink or whatever it may be, you know, that that's one example. And, and we will be forced to make changes. I feel like it, it like it's already too late now. So then when that time comes, I know this is sort of morbid. Um, I'm so sorry. 
we're going, going down this path. <laughs> but you're right. Yeah, it is the truth. And um, a lot of times I find that I, I want to talk about this kind of stuff and I want to relay this information and relate to people about it, but it's so traumatizing to even think about when I don't, you know, like off the clock that like, yeah. <laughs> I almost just am like out of sight, out of mind. I've done what I could do for the eight hours that I work today. Tomorrow is another day and I'm just going to keep fighting as hard as I can um, while also trying to maintain my sanity. Uh, so I don't know that it's, that's a, a burden that I often have. Sorry to go off on a tangent, but no, 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 go for it. Often I'm like, I want to talk about this, but like, it's so traumatizing to, to, to talk about it. And I, I, I say trauma because I feel like it's not that I know what it's like to be in an ER, but I feel like it's a similar situation to an ER nurse or an ER doctor and the type of trauma that they experience every day. Like we see our earth being sick and there's people out there that either don't believe it or just don't care. Like they, they, they do believe it, but they just don't care because they, it, they think it doesn't affect them. And like, it'll be like the next generation's issue to worry about or whatever the case may be. Um, and it's just really frustrating <laughs> in that regard. And I actually have like one of the questions I have jotted down here is, you know, I, I follow you on Twitter and, you know, Instagram and you have two separate accounts, right? So it comes back to what you were kind of just saying now is you want to have this conversation, but there is like a bit of self-care that needs to take place. So is you, would you say that's kind of some advice for you know, people in all career paths not to take everything home and kind of be 24-7 on, you know, work, even though, because that's what your work is to try and educate and obviously you saving the plants first, like that's number one. And then you, you, you know, educate everyone around you, but you can't do it all the time. So I was just going to ask, you know, how does, you know, social media and, you know, you just started your Twitch how is that all, you know, helping you kind of sustain a healthy work and non-work, you know, life balance? That's a great question because translational science is one of my uh, passions in life. And I want to make this information accessible to people, not just other scientists, but lay people like, like yeah. you or, you know, anyone who may be interested um, but yes, to what you, to your point, I do compartmentalize my life <laughs> heavily. I don't know. Like, I don't think there's one science. I, well, maybe there's one scientist, one of my, uh, lab mates, uh, in grad school who knows about like all the sides of me, um, which there should, you, you know, uh, like Annalisa said in her episode there, we are all multifaceted humans. And I would be concerned if, if you just had one you know, thing about you. <laughs> um, but I, I guess I never thought about it this way, but it is sort of what you just said. What that's my compartmentalization is how I deal with the frustration and the trauma of being a climate change scientist. Yeah. Um, 
while also fulfilling what I believe is my other purpose, which is to connect with people, to bring joy to their to their day, whether it just be one smile um, or one person relating to something that I, you know, talk about on social media. Um, so I don't know. I like. I feel as though there are people out there who are really, really mentally strong and can think about their work all the time, which a lot of academics do. A lot of academics who, you know, whether they're salaried or not, they like when I'm in the shower, you know, I'll like have shower thoughts about how like this evolutionary theory that I think this one plant is like undergoing, <laughs> like washing my hair. And um, that's fine and normal. I think it like, if you, especially if you care about your job, um, but right to, to the way that I find I can stay as sane as possible, not saying that I am sane by any means, but to, to, to be as, you know, mentally stable as possible. Um, I try to touch on both or all sides of myself and what makes me happy each day. And, um, that's sort of, yeah, that's whatever. When you reached out to my like, um, science Instagram, (laughs) uh, I, I have the the notifications on for, you know, my science uh, Instagram and Twitter and accounts and stuff. And I scroll it occasionally. But for the most part, I think who I am, like at my core, is my personal um, Instagram and Twitter. So I, I do spend a lot more time on those. And I, ch- I think I do that purposefully because the community there is just, they they know who I am at the core more as opposed to my scientific community um, is more so who they know the academic me, you know? Mm. Yeah, I didn't want to miss... question. <laughs> no, it does, it does. I didn't want to message you on your, like your other account because I'll probably get lost in the DMs anyway. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're... Uh, not this is not to toot my own horn by any means but it's just true it's uh, there, true there are a lot of people who dm me for for many reasons it's not just you know the reply guys <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah they do get lost <laughs> so it was strategic as well but the, the the thought was there got it got it important question is i recently had a um medical scientist who's in vaccinology and obviously with you know covid vaccines being rolled out now all over the world there's mistrust everywhere you know regarding the science behind it you know how do you do this in that amount of time and you know with you being in climate change related science you know why do you think there's such mistrust in science do you think it comes down to the way our leaders you know use politics to to you know, kind of leverage certain things because there is money involved. You know, what's your take on why is there such mistrust when it comes to science? That's a great question. Um, well, there's many layers to the answer. I'm going to try to touch on as many as possible in as short a amount of time as possible. So the first layer, I think, is that scientists historically have been viewed by the public overall as being these 
sentient beings that yeah. do things and find out information and discover stuff. And they are in their ivory towers and they're far, far removed from us. They're not like us. They are them, you know? And um, there's many reasons for that. That's not like the public's fault. That's the systemic, part of the systemic and bureaucratic problem that I think that the scientific community has. And I would like to see that changed. Um, but, so I, I think that's one reason where it's like, we, one, you're in your ivory towers and you like use these hoity-toity terms that no one understands. So how do you expect me to like, relate to you you know why should I care about what you do so that's why that's part of the reason why translational science um, trying to disseminate this information in as plain English as possible um, to people who actually care is gonna empower them to value what you have to say and what you're doing and what and like help them understand why they should care too um, I think the other layer is for sure, um, I don't know what it's like in South Africa, but in the United States, politicians are, you know, known as people who often lie because policy, in order to climb the political ladder, you have to be this charismatic being that appeases um, a lot of people, right, in order to get constituents, and you have to have ideas that people can get behind, and so a lot of times politicians lie, um, which causes a distrust in our government, and then when they make policy about science-based things like vaccines or um, COVID-19 related protocols, for example, it then bleeds into the mistrust of scientific information. And then I think the last layer that I'll touch on is historically in this country, black and brown people have been manipulated by vaccinations and medical related um, practices for hundreds of years. So I think that also has to play into it. Um, so I think the best way to mitigate this mistrust is to, as a layperson, one, check your sources. Um, because again, we have the world of information at our fingertips now, um, if you have a computer and internet access. And so with obviously a lot of information that comes with a lot of misinformation, unfortunately, because um, things spread. And so check your sources for one. For two, um, if you are a scientist or if you believe in science, which I would hope you do, um, disseminate information that is correct and help people who, you know, who are reasonable. I'm not saying waste your time on trying to reason with unreasonable people because um, that would be a waste. But try, like if somebody has questions, either direct them towards the right answers. You can, and it's, it's okay. It's perfectly okay to, for anyone listening to not know. You can say, I don't know, but I either know someone who, who does, or yeah. I can, I can link you to X, Y, and Z. And these are credible science-based 
sources that you can refer to and then you can make your own choices from there. Yeah, I think um, it's it's an interesting thing because like over here, we don't have the, I would say we don't really, it's not like the US where I feel like the politicians play this kind of, they play uh, he said, she said, and I'll, you know, just slide wherever I can and my beliefs change according to where I stand. Um, I think, yeah, we just have general, um, it's just lack of education on our side. Um, and I think that's, you know, on the government's part as well, you know, just the way we've spent money. But it's it's nothing like in the in the US where our politicians take different stances on climate change and I think it's strange in a way now that I think about it but obviously with you know with Trevor Noah being at, you know at the Daily Show that's where I kind of started watching a lot of his stuff and understanding how you know the the politics work on that side and it's 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 scary because like you mentioned um, science is being these um, these kind of beings above the rest of us some people view politicians as those beings as well and that's even scarier because now whatever they say goes and that's mistrust in science and and basically all things factual so definitely a, a scary thing to to think about um can you explain to us exactly what you do um because you you're also a lab manager um at the california botanical garden so can you maybe just give us an insight into you you know your daily if you can give us a a day in you know the the life of a conservation geneticist if you want to put it that way yeah um so i wouldn't be able to give you a day in the life because uh every day is a little bit different for me which i really love i feel like if every day were the same doing the same monotonous thing a monotonous thing then I wouldn't really enjoy life <laughs> at work but um let's see so one part of my job like you mentioned is to manage uh two laboratory spaces one is dedicated to molecular research the other one is for plant anatomy and systemics and um so yeah I just manage the facilities you know purchase things that um, researchers need. And these are shared lab spaces as opposed to, um, I don't know, at like a university or something, you might have your own lab space and nobody mm-hmm. like shares with you. So you you order your own reagents and supplies and et cetera. Um, so that's one aspect of my job. The other aspect, the conservation geneticist part is I work with federal agencies, such as here in the States, um, the Bureau of Land Management, the U.S. Geological Service, uh, Department of Defense, we've done a project with, um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, where we come up with these proposals for these grants. And then if we get those grants funded, we do, um, you know, we complete the scope of work, whatever that might be. So for example, one project would be Well, one project that I'm working on right now that is huge and a lot of money has been invested in it by the Bureau of Land Management is 
uh, discovering empirical seed transfer zones for five high priority restoration species in the Mojave Desert in order to restore um, habitat to preserve the endangered and federally listed desert tortoise. Okay. So there's there's this handful of species that they chose, and we are doing the genetic research on um, uh, figuring out the genetic diversity and where genetic diversity lies for these species in the wild, and then processing those data in these seed transfer zones. And then from there, we can recommend how many seed transfer zones there are across the Mojave. And then from there, we can collect seeds from various, from those sources. And then we can plant those seeds after growing them up, like in the greenhouse, et cetera, in order to restore the habitat there. And um, these species are important for desert tortoise habitat because they either feed on them or they use them for shelter or whatever. So um, when I say that, so, so yeah, so that's, that's the geneticist side. Um, what I mean by I do molecular uh, work is I literally extract DNA from these plant tissue samples and um, most plant tissues that you, you would extract DNA from are leaf tissue. And some are harder to extract than others. Um, fun fact, plant, plant tissues are the most difficult to extract DNA from because plants, right, are, they're like these stationary things um, and they like have to live in one place for their entire life. And they have, so in order for like, sort of like how we have an immune system, they have all of these secondary compounds that protect them from disease, from pests, from herbis, uh, er herbivores, etc. So um, for that reason, it's really difficult to actually extract DNA from plant tissues. But we do that and then we build these libraries and they're called libraries because we attach these barcodes to each individual. And um, that way we're able to put them all, like we, we can put a like almost a hundred samples into one library. And then after they become sequenced, we can use the sequence data and bioinformatically um, characterize which, which piece of DNA belongs to which individual that we sampled from in the wild. So, um, so my job is like partly molecular, but it's partly bioinformatics as well. So there's a coding component to it. Um, and obviously there's like a reporting component to it. So there's a lot of scientific writing, reporting, um, et cetera. And then one of my favorite parts of my job is that I get to mentor young and early career scientists. Um, every semester uh, at my job, I have a new lab RA and so Sometimes they have done lab work before. Sometimes they have never picked up a pipette in their life. And I get to like basically teach them all the skills that they would need in order to run their own molecular lab one day if, if necessary. Um, so there's that. And then I also, um, this isn't part of my job, but I, it kind of is. It's a volunteer um, opportunity where I mentor a young, well, two young women of color in um, ecology and evolutionary biology. And that's another um, 
really fulfilling and, and important part of who I am is like, I get to connect with these young scientists and, um, give them advice if they need it or listen to them vent if they need it or look at their CVs and edit their cover letters, you know, all, like whatever they may need, I'm, I'm there. And that's uh, one of the best parts about my job, I think. Um, and I think the last thing I want to say about my job is I'm really lucky to work at this beautiful garden. First of all, it's 86 acres, huge. Um, the biggest garden dedicated to California native plants, actually, and the biggest seed house and the biggest herbarium um, dedicated to California native plants. But the personnel that work there are uniquely um, really supportive and just kind people. I think that I mean, I've never worked in any other type of lab. I've only worked with plant people, but I would say that in order to be a plant person, you kind of have to be a very just sweet person in general, because you obviously care about these things that other people would like take one look at and think that it's a weed and just step on, you know? <laughs> so That's a good a really, point. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of really good mentors at my job, people I look up to, people who champion me and, um, you know, other underrepresented groups in the scientific community, which I really appreciate. And, you know, just to touch on that um, before we move on, um, in general, obviously, women are underrepresented in, in most, you know, career paths being a woman in science and like you mentioned having a hand in you know mentoring uh poc um, sciences and the fact that they're women as well do you you know how how is the current um field especially in your in your specific field of science when it comes to diversity you know do you, is there still you know especially the people kind of around our age and the generation slightly younger do you see that diversity creeping through now to a point where you know you're not having to constantly you know th see just one type of person in a role yeah um i that's a great question because i don't know if i've just been lucky to experience uh the diversity of people too, <laughs> when, when it comes to biodiversity. Um, because at my, you know, undergrad and graduate institution, um, I went to school at the University of San Francisco. There were a lot of female uh, biologists, biology majors, and um, female faculty there too. I would say it was about like 50-50 in terms of the faculty. Um, so that was great. And then here at the garden, well, before I get to the garden, when I would go to conferences and stuff for like evolutionary biologists, it, that's why, that's I think where I kind of was like, oh, okay, I'm kind of in a bubble because, <laughs> because mm -hmm. at the conferences I was able to see, oh, wow, I'm, I could look around in this entire room and maybe there's one black person and there's one Asian person and it's me. And, you know, and so that, mm -hmm. that's where it really became more apparent. Um, I think overall, when it comes to plant biologists and botanists, 
the vast majority, like, I don't know, 90%, maybe a little less, like 80% are white. Um, the, the next largest group that is severely underrepresented in general is Hispanic and Latin, Latinx. I was going to say Latinx, which I think that might be wrong, but that's how I say, that's how I say Latinx. Um, Latinx community is next. And I think it's around like 14% maybe. And then I think, uh, Asians are next, which is like 8%. And then black people and indigenous people are the smallest group in, um, the plant world. But then I come to the garden and it's cool because even though racially it's still very um, white, which reflects the um, plant statistics and plant demographic, there are so every single position of leadership is held by a woman, and there there is some diversity there. Like there, my boss is um, a Latina, and I. There are other brown people at the garden, but I think I am the first Asian uh, staff member in the research department there, um, which kind of says a lot because Southern California is a pretty diverse place. Um, Los Angeles County in general is very diverse, so... Um, we're making strides and, and we, we make it a point at the garden to look for underrepresented interns to, um, to get introduced into the, the community and to do actual work in there and get work experience and grow their CVs. Um, and my, my boss has always been a champion for underrepresented people. So, um, uh, yeah, so again, to say <laughs> long story long, um, <laughs> I think that uh, I, I've been really lucky to see that. And um, obviously in the last year, the United States has undergone the largest demonstration of civil unrest since the civil rights movement. So um, there have been, an, um, obviously, as there should be in every field, there has been a lot of diversity and inclusion initiatives, including that, uh, including Black Botanists Week, which is huge. And then there's like Latinx Botanists Week. And so all these um, things are popping up where we're like, oh my gosh, there's black and brown people in our field. Who would have yeah. thunk? You know, um, I'm saying that facetiously, but you know, yeah. some people <laughs> don't say that facetiously. <laughs> and I think what you raised, um, you know, when you were explaining kind of when you were you know, studying, there was that 50-50 kind of split. But when you went to a conference, yes. Um, when you went to a conference, that's when you saw the major gap. And that, I think that's the case in most fields. It's like in, you know, at the bottom level where we are, you know, maybe acquiring education, you know, you're going for your degree, you do see a fair split. But it's the actual getting the job is where you kind of see you know, the lack of diversity in some instances. So, you know, that's, it's always interesting just to kind of gauge, um, especially in different areas. So you, you know, you've you mentioned the current project you guys are busy with. Um, what other species that you've looked into, you know, 
in depth. I know you've looked into the, is it Arabus blepharophylla? I, I can't even pronounce that, but um, can you maybe tell us a bit Almost. about, because <laughs> I try, I try. Google Google didn't give the option to pronounce it for me, so <laughs> kind of <laughs> yeah, left me in the um, dark there. It's Arabus blepharophylla. Mm-hmm. Um, Coast rockcress is the common name. Can you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, can you tell us a bit about the science behind that? You know, like what did you specifically research over that period of time, and why you found it was because that's quite a a specific plant to you know in California. Um, can you maybe mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about what you you found while researching? Yeah, I'll try to distill my entire master's thesis down to two, <laughs> to, to ten seconds. <laughs> I, I'm not going to be able to do it, but um, yes. Coast rockcress or Arabis blepharophylla is a California native plant found across Marin County in Northern California to, um, I believe the Southern range is San Mateo County. Um, It is limited in not only its distribution latitudinally, but longitudinally as well, because it prefers coast habitats. Um, So you'll find it really, really close um, to the ocean. And I studied this plant for my master's because uh, it's a rare, it's not like listed rare or threatened or endangered, but I was making the case that it should be um, by looking at not only its um, diminishing distribution over the past hundred years, but also genetic uh, loss that may have occurred over that time as well. Um, And that what I found was, yes, indeed, (laughs) it's true. Like people should be paying attention to this plant and um, restoring it across its um, historical ranges. If not in its historical ranges, then in areas where its climatic niche or like, you know, ecologically where it likes to live is now, because um, before you know it, it'll become putatively extirpated in its um, populations where it once was. Um, So, uh, the the cool thing I think is cool about coast coastal plants is that they prefer this very specific they have these very specific um, environmental conditions that they need in order to thrive such as um, wet soil all the time and sea spray you know um, fog um, in in San Francisco a lot of plants need um, Things like that, that require it, that or that it requires in order to sustain and continue. Um, versus if you were to look at a plant that thrives in inland habitats, where there's more like seasonal drought, it's um, hotter overall, um, there's no fog or less fog considerably, these plants have to be treated in different ways because the ones that prefer this very specific environmental niche, it isn't going to survive if the conditions become more so like the inland habitat, you know, versus if the inland habitat plants um, that have less like specific requirements, those can be treated in um, a wider range of conditions as opposed to, yeah, vice versa. So um, that's not a new theory that theory has been around for like 30 years or something like that um but it's 
it's really important in the context too of like why tropical plants um why they're so like yeah like a lot of tropical plants can survive along the tropical zone of our globe um but if it's brought outside of that it's going to have a tougher time so to speak to survive than a plant that lives in the temperate zone and is brought to the tropics you know um so that's why I studied that plant and I feel like that study really set me up for my current job now and like the direction that I wanted to go because now I do exactly that only like only every like every year is like a master's project but times a hundred <laughs> because just the scale of these projects now are huge and the timelines are a little bit different and um yeah I I really appreciate what um my advisor like allowed me to do because there was that's another thing where when you're mentoring young undergraduates or grad students um finding an, uh, an advisor that that you gel with is a huge thing and my advisor allowed me a lot of academic freedom to study whatever I wanted and he was he was down with it he was like hell yeah let's do it um my master's journey was definitely not easy I had more failures than not which I think that aspect of being a scientist nobody ever talks about because when you read the papers and you see the publications you only see people's successes but science as a as a process is actually 99% failure all the time. And it takes a certain personality to be able to endure that and overcome that. And yeah, I think that's also, you know, goes back to what you were saying that, you know, these, we often view scientists as these sentient beings, you know, like they're always above, they, they know everything, you know, that's the perception. And I think it's because there's also the lack of, you know, this level of conversation with a scientist where it's human to human connection to an extent where we can talk about failure and success on such a basic level and it's not like oh here's you know the the paper and you can read it and try and decipher my scientific language you know so i think that's also important to kind of just keep in mind that scientists are just people (laughs) <laughs> they're just mm-hmm. like us um and and that's <laughs> exactly what they're just like us um that's exactly what the vaccinologist said um the guy I had on the podcast previously daniel he was also saying that you know there just needs to be better language translation like you mentioned earlier just to help people get on a similar level of kind of understanding the science and that will somehow contribute to less you know skepticism within the science world mm-hmm. um yeah a question i have for you you mentioned you know how coastal and tropical plants can you know survive along that that tropical region and then as they move inland they would struggle to survive because of the various conditions is there any way that you know like how humans adapt to certain conditions like people who live at the you know the north pole or south pole you know they'll adapt their body changes and you kind of just adapt is there any way that you've seen for instance coastal plants um adapt and change when put into a new environment 
Well, for sure. There's, there's um, obviously more examples of temperate zone or inland plants doing so and migrating towards the coast in that way. But the reason why coastal plants are sort of, in addition to these specialized um, environmental conditions that they require, the reason why that they are more sort of um, at risk of potential extinction is because of sea level rise and um, coastal erosion. Like those two things um, compound to create these heightened conservation risks. Um, in, in, in plants, there's this thing called plasticity, which essentially, well, essentially it makes our, our jobs as um, plant botanists really hard because sometimes plants can appear one way, but it's the same species as another thing but it doesn't look that way. Yeah. <laughs> so morphologically and phenotypically, they have these plastic um, traits, but they can also have these plastic like genetic traits where they um, morph and adapt to their surrounding environments to a certain extent. And some plants have more plasticity than others. Um, the more plastic you are as a plant, um, the higher your survivability and right like again that's an evolutionary stable strategy if you um, are a fit plant then you will be able to adapt to your environment to some degree and all plants do do that to a, a degree um, especially like even locally there's this um, idea called local adaptation to where like this one plant that comes from the southern part of the mountain if you were to put it onto the north side it wouldn't like it and it, it won't do well because it's locally adapted to like mm. the amount of shade that it gets or the amount of moisture that's in the soil there, you know? Um, so yeah, there, there are examples, but they're, they're fewer and far between than if you were to flip the situation. Yeah. I find that quite um, interesting because um, I play golf and there's a lot of, um, research and a lot of people coming out and saying golf is like destroying the planet obviously because of the massive land uh, that a golf course you know covers and how it's bad for the environment um, but there's certain things that thrive within certain golf courses so like your coastal it's just interesting how you always find like a similar plant set up you know that grows on that kind of um platform if i can refer to a golf course as a platform that you find it along the coast all the golf courses have this set of you know plants and then if you go inland it's it's very similar so it's just interesting to see how you know why there isn't the crossover from coast to inland versus inland to coast but as you mentioned it's easier for the inland to adapt or survive basically when going to the coast Theoretically, um, yeah, because yeah. Um, it it all go, it comes down to like, well, this is just one hypothesis. This is not the end-all be-all for every single plant. But one hypothesis is that certain plants have a narrower 
amount of conditions that they'll tolerate, and then other plants will have a wider um, window of what they will tolerate. So, yeah, it comes down to that and how much they're willing to waver and be plastic. Yeah. And, you know, with COVID um, and the mass kind of lockdown that everyone went under, you know, across the world, we saw quite early on um, how nature kind of started not necessarily taking over again, but how things started to change with the lack of activity in certain areas. Um, like, for, for instance, here in South Africa, um, in Cape Town, there's, you know, a group at a specific um, area there's penguins and they started journeying inland you know towards the city and across the roads and stuff because there wasn't that traffic and um, the growth was different you could see the you know the sea was cleaner the lakes and the rivers for instance were all cleaner there was this different kind of way of environment adapting to this new world that we live in do you, did you notice anything within your labs or not necessarily within your labs, but within your environments around you, like anything changing? And does this kind of just reiterate the fact that, you know, humans are basically um, bullying the planet in, in a sense? Um, I don't think that I've noticed anything any like positive change okay <laughs> sounds so sad but i don't know if you've um heard uh last week i believe a headline came out um by the la times saying that our air conditions here are as bad as they've ever been and that's not because of the typical smog from cars because la mm. is so you know no congested yeah yeah, traffic and millions of people. But it's because the city had to lift its air quality um, regulations in order for the cremations that are occurring from COVID-19 to continue. Wow. So that, so this is not what you wanted to hear. but yeah. um, And it's not biological, but that is a way that this... Like, that you would think that the air quality would be better. And it was for a little while there. But um, since the winter and how bad it's gotten and how many deaths there has actually been, the cremation is literally backlogged. And so the city had to lift its regulations for air quality control in order to help get through that, which is wild to me. Yeah, that's okay. I didn't. I actually didn't see that. That's quite. But but I mean, that's been the general thing that um, crematoriums have been backed up. I think even here in South Africa, there's in certain in our hotspot areas where COVID has kind of you know sit, um, put its foot down. It's definitely shown that that's also the case here. Um, not to the level where I think we have. You know, obviously the masses. You know over in the u.s there's just so much you know so many more people um but that's quite quite sad actually mm -hmm. um yeah not the answer i was looking for unfortunately i know and, um, and not the answer i wanted to give you yeah um because yeah over here we've definitely seen like a, a change but obviously now as things start going back to you know a very busy you know especially on the roads there's we kind of going back to the old ways 
Um, a question I have is, do you think there needs to be more scientists in your field? Or do you think because, you know, you mentioned earlier, like finding a job like yours is, you know, one in 10 years kind of thing. But do you think that if the numbers increase, you'll be able to then broaden the field and, and you know, get more hands on the, the world of plants? I believe that there are a decent amount of people who are interested in this sort of thing, like whether they are interested in planting native plants in their gardens, in their homes, or um, learning about, you know, what a plant historically has done for the indigenous people there or whatever it may be. Um, I don't think that there's a lack of people who are interested, but there has to be at the systemic level funding in order for this science to actually continue and for positions whether like mine or in restoration or in literally uh, weed control situations or even at the data analysis level, we're at a place in technology too, in science, where there is literally so much data that we don't, we cannot, we don't have enough time and people to process them. And if there was funding, then I think that these jobs would fill up, but they're just isn't. And so that's why um, there are so few job openings like mine and why also, I mean, to the other, the other part of why jobs don't often open like mine are because people enjoy doing what they do um, sort of necessarily. So like a person like me might stay in my job like the first job that I get for my entire career because it's so pleasant or whatever. So um, I think the combination of those two things makes it really hard for people to pursue this. Um, like even the graduate students at my institution, they, after they graduate with their master's or their PhD, they have to seriously think about like, okay, what can I do to sustain my life and live comfortably um, that also fulfills my passions. And that's what a lot of us ask. Um, but it sucks when it has to do like deal with the environment and trying to make the environment last as long as possible, basically. Um, because it's sort it's a thankless job, I feel. Yeah. yeah. And it's also, you guys have to pay off those student loans that can be quite, intense very intense which is literally like half the reason why i'm doing twitch <laughs> <laughs> to help repay those student loans oh and the fact that you have your master's means you've been studying for, you you did your fair share and accumulated quite a bit of yeah. of especially debt. in mm -hmm. especially in one of the most um, expensive cities to live in in this nation <laughs> yay me <laughs> <laughs> Oh, perfect it's timing. fine it's gonna be fine <laughs> um if you could focus on anything in particular you know in your field what would it be like if you could dedicate and choose a project right now like in a perfect world you know what would you be doing is there anything like specific you're looking at and um yeah 
just just your thoughts on that Like in my current position right now, or if I could do, if I like got a grant to do anything. Anything, anything on the planet that's in your field, obviously, but yeah, that you could walk into right now and start researching or, you know. (sighs) There's a lot of things. Oh my gosh. There's so many things that I want to change that that we sort of touched on. Um, But plant related, I guess. I would want to start a project to protect this one species called Chloropyron tecapensi, which occurs um, down here in the desert region of Southern California, Nevada. And um, there's these two populations for this plant um, that are separated by like 150 kilometers, which is kind of wild because there's no other populations between these two. So it's like for for this plant that is sessile and stationary, how did you how'd you get over there? <laughs> so yeah. we want to figure out, yeah, like what what genetic um, uniqueness one population has versus the other one, what how much genetic dif- differentiation there is between them because it's assumed to be a lot, considering how far they are. Um, and I would love to hire young women or young people of color to. Um, help me do this work and mentor them throughout the process and give them the work experience and then come out, uh, write a paper and write a manuscript with them uh, so that they can have a publication on their CVs um, because pub- publication in, publications excuse me, in this field are like cash money. Um, and that way I would be able to like fulfill my civic duty of being a, a conservation scientist, but then I also get to be a mentor and I also get to provide novel, cool information about this plant that I think is important in this area um, to the scientific community. So I think it'll like hit all the, hit all the all spots. Them. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. And you, you know, you mentioned like trying to help especially students, you know, coming fresh out of, you know, varsity and or just to help them in in that sense. What advice do you have for young scientists, whether they be still, you know, within the studying process or those that have graduated? What advice can you give them um, just in, in general, in a sense of, you know, finding that passion or, you know, just finding a job that, you know, ignites that passion that you have now currently? Like, what advice can you give them? And, you know, just to to add on to that, to also just to sustain a healthy kind of balance within, you know, work and, and mental well-being. Um, the best advice that I have for scientists in general, but especially scientists like me who didn't have like people in my family or people to look up to as I was um I I am an immigrant I'm a first generation American I'm a first generation college goer is to find um someone who is going to champion you for example if you are going to be in residency in a lab and learning certain skills in undergrad then I would hope that you would 
be really um, picky about who you get that mentorship from because honestly finding a mentor is a is is like finding a life partner yeah because this person can either make or break your interest in this career because if it's a bad advisor or mentor then that person could um, deter you from the, the field overall and make you regret every decision that led you there you know um, it sounds dramatic, but a lot of people leave academia for that very reason. And so I think that's my biggest advice for anyone, but specifically people who don't have um, someone to look up to in like their family or like a, you know, a role model figure otherwise, is to choose your mentor or your advisor really wisely and ensure that they are going to root for you, empower you, be on your side. Um, all of those th- little things that a good leader should have for um, especially a young impressionable scientist who is trying to break into the field. Yeah, I think that's, and I think that's like in most cases, um, especially if you're in a family where you're pursuing a career that no one else has experience in, very important to make sure that the people around you kind of support you and, you know, also acknowledge you know your situation to an extent where they see that you know i don't have that figure to you know converse with on a daily basis that can understand what i'm going through and you know that can provide that little bit of extra support you know off off the clock at some cases yeah into the mental health side of all of that having a good relationship with your uh, mentor or advisor is going to obviously improve your mental health because it's all connected and um, it'll just make your quality of life all the better you know yeah and one of the last questions i have for you so i um, sent a i sent my my friend a your job title and i said listen do you have any questions and he said, I should ask you, in a hypothetical situation, when you look at something like Jurassic Park, where they've brought back extinct things in a controlled environment, how do you feel about that as a conservation you know, geneticist? Like the, the way that, obviously this is all hypothetical, but if you could, you know, how do you feel about bringing back things that are now extinct using you know, coding DNA and all those scientific terms. Just your thoughts on that. Um, really interesting question, <laughs> first of all. <laughs> um, that, that is, a, a, there, there's a lot to think about there, especially when it comes to large animals like dinosaurs, you know? Because yes, in theory, it could be a controlled environment, but in practice, is it actually going to be? <laughs> um, but in short, to answer that question, well, that's sort of what we do without the genetic editing part. That's what we're trying to accomplish with restoration practices is to restore right a specific area to what it was like in its most natural form. And when I say natural, I mean the way that it was before humans invi- like interrupted its you know Natural processes state. yeah cuz a lot of, you know people who are anti conservation are like 
Well, humans are natural. No. <laughs> Extinction's natural. Yes, but not at this alarming rate yeah. of like 100,000 times the normal extinction rate. Um, anyway, <laughs> so to, in short, to answer your question, in restoration, that's what we do. But when it comes to like genetic editing and like, I don't know, even bringing back the dead and stuff like that, that's that I just feel like there should be a lot of thought put into that before we even attempt to do something like that because it could I mean these are people's lives at risk you know like when you bring dinosaurs back to this current world you know like that people's lives are at risk here it's not just it's not fun and games anymore so uh just just be very careful I don't know I don't know about that one (laughs) interesting you'll find it at like a Disney park (laughs) Yeah, and again, I don't even know if I will personally go to amusement parks ever again, uh, considering how unsanitary life was before coronavirus, and we're starting to understand. Um, But you know, to each their own. I if you are gonna if you are a billionaire and you're listening to this and you're like, ooh, I'm gonna do that, then please, 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 just think about it heavily. Use that thick brain of yours and. Seriously consider all potential risks. I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> it it did, and it, yeah, it, it kind of did. Um. <laughs> Just when, when it comes to, like, large megafauna. But, I'm, I mean, even considering, like, I suppose, like you mentioned, you guys kind of do it already. You do it to an extent where you do it before it goes extinct. Am I correct in saying that? Mm-hmm. So if you could bring back, for instance, a plant that, is extinct i don't know how you would do that you'd obviously need you would need some like form of the plant yeah like some fossil fossil seed Mm -hmm. or something along those lines but would you do something like that do you think that's obviously less there'll be less repercussion if something does you know can't really go too bad can it like if it was dinosaurs obviously dinosaurs can ravages city yeah yeah it's possible um right so when it comes to plants there's less like danger so to speak involved um my biggest concern with that is how much funding is going into this where's the funding coming from if it's Mm. just like a rich person not knowing what to do with their money then whatever fine but if it's like federal funding going to like you know like trying to like launch plants into outer space or something it's like yo what are you doing what are you like can we can we just bring it back here and let's figure out a better way to <laughs> utilize the resources that we have here you know yeah 100 percent. and to close off is there anything you want to leave the audience with that we should you know keep in mind looking at plants is there something that you want to leave us with that we can maybe implement in our daily lives that we can make the earth a slightly better place yeah um there's a lot i can say but when it comes to i guess the conservation aspect because like there's a lot i can say about the environment but when it comes to conservation i think the best thing that anybody who's listening right now can do is to visit botanic gardens Because 
Um, I believe all of them are nonprofit. At least mine is. It's nonprofit. We don't make, you know, any money from you attending and uh, being a patron and enjoying nature. But just attend, or I mean, uh, visit a botanic garden, take a look at what's around you. Um, Hopefully you can see the value in not only the beauty of the um, species around you, but like where these species came from and what they have to endure in order to persist. And then by visiting the plant, or I mean, by visiting your local botanic gardens, um, hopefully you have some, you're inadvertently like you're probably going to feel something and you're probably going to leave, you know, feeling better than when you came. And, um, we, we love to see like environmentalists. We love to see people, you know, enjoying green spaces and just like connecting with nature. Um, and then hopefully you, you will relay your experience to people in your circle and maybe they'll come and visit too. And just like, yeah, the sheer, I don't think that that's asking a lot, but um, another thing that you can do is to donate to local botanic gardens. Like even if you don't live there or like if you have visited, for example, Los Angeles once and you loved it and you would love to um, contribute to preserving the species here, um, donating to your botanic garden is also really, really helpful. And is one of the reasons, like donors are literally the reason why I still have a job and, and have sustained this job throughout this pandemic. Because a lot of botanic gardens and natural history museums have closed um, because there's just no funding to pay yeah. people. And then one other thing that you can do is to actually plant native plants in your gardens if you're lucky to have one. I don't have a garden, but if I did, I would love to um, plant native um, species there because those species are adapted to live, you know, where you live. So, um, chances are you don't have to maintain maintain them very much. You don't have to, you know, put in so much effort into like fertilizer and herbicides and all this other stuff and, and watering them because typically, like for example, in Southern California, native plants are drought tolerant. So, you know, whatever conditions that it experiences in nature are what it should be able to to sustain in your garden. Um, and that way, not only are you like, it's not plant focused, it's actually like ecosystem focused because then the local um, pollinators, the animal pollinators that depend on these plants for food and nectar and pollen and energy um, will thrive and they'll be so happy that you are, you know, feeding them and all this stuff. Um, and it'll be a ripple effect of just environmental goodness. So those are, those are a few things that I would be so happy (laughs) if even one person did, because, um, it makes a a bigger difference than you think. And with that, thanks Neela for making time and joining us and kind of just educating us about the importance of, you know, conservation, especially in the plant um, world because we we obviously know along the animal um, side there's a lot of you know quite a loud presence of that um, so yeah thanks for for giving us the the insight thanks for having me and uh, thanks uh, everyone for listening <laughs>